0: Goes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell if it's moving or not. Yeah, yeah it's moving. Whoops. You're on mic, too. You can keep that from running the door. I do have my handout if you'll just. I can't, <laughs> win I can't win it all the right, way. Can, can we start with clear again? <laughs> if you'll just pass those to that. like the jackrabbit, the kind of way. There's been so much going on in my life here lately that I'm not even sure where we, if we finished the outline that I gave last time. I think we did. Very hurriedly went through it and told you to it yourself and maybe it would open up some questions that you might have as we spent that first time just talking about the general direction that we were going to be attempting to uh, go in and at the same time sharing with you uh, on a view of dispensations approaching it from uh, the view of a dispensationalist and gave you some notes on that the outline that I'm passing around now or that's being passed around now is uh, an outline on the book of Revelation. Uh, It's one of many outlines that you might find on the book of Revelation. This is my own personal one uh, that I have used in teaching uh, the book of Revelation. And not in any depth, it's just to give us a little bit of understanding about the general breakdown of the book itself and uh, the areas that we are going to be looking at. A lot of people think that the book of Revelation uh, is a very confusing book. And uh, one of the reasons that it appears to be is because there is a lot of biblical symbolism in the book. We, one of the handouts that we will get a, be getting to you uh, in the next couple of weeks will uh, be a list of the symbols that are used in the book of Revelation, or many of them anyway, and uh, along with them the definition One rule of thumb that we need to observe as we study the Bible, if we run into something that uh, appears to be a symbol, is to define that symbol within the framework of the Bible itself. Uh, Go back to how that was used earlier in Scripture and then be able to understand how it relates as a symbol. And So I'll be sharing uh, some of those with you in a printed uh, outline just a little later. Tonight I felt like it would be beneficial for us just to go over the outline of the, uh, the breakdown of the book as uh, we'll be looking at it, and we'll be adding to uh, the book of Revelation. I shouldn't say that. That'll get me in trouble. Uh, there is a passage in the book of Revelation that says we'll be to those that add to it, huh? Well, that's a paraphrase of it. But uh, we'll be supplementing uh, by review of Revelation with some of the other Old Testament prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah, Some of the others, uh, Isaiah and others that will fit in and we'll be bringing material uh, from those Old Testament prophecies uh, into proper location as we look at uh, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation itself will be the uh, general framework uh, of our study. One of the confusing things about the book of Revelation is that there is in the middle of the book a parenthesis. A parenthesis meaning a parenthetical examination where uh, we have chronologically gone so far and then go back and look at some other uh, material and facts that relate to that same period of time. And so if you try to read it chronologically and, and see the events happening uh, one after the other from chapter 1 through chapter 22, uh, we we'll be very confused. And So I felt like the outline might help us be able to understand that. Uh, as we get started and be able to relate to it. The first chapter is basically introduction. It introduces uh, the setting uh, of the writing of the revelation as it's given. It introduces the author and sets forth uh, some of the objectives of the book uh, within the first chapter. Chapters 2 and 3 are presenting a prophetic panorama of the history of the church. Uh, That panorama view of the history of the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost in the year 30 AD until it will finish its mission and be caught up up out of the earth uh, at the rapture uh, at some undesignated point in time uh, is covered in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4 is the church no longer on the earth but in heaven and it presents the church in its heavenly environment. Chapter 5 presents the seven sealed scroll, uh, a book with, rolled up as a scroll with seven seals. The opening of each seal will allow the reader to read so far, uh, and then break another seal and read so far. The fifth chapter, the seven sealed scroll, is really the key to the book of Revelation and to our understanding the things that are being conveyed uh, in the book. The seven seals I have briefly uh, noted in the outline material. The first seal is covered in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the introduction of a white horse, which is uh, symbolic of a period of dictatorship. It is a time of pseudo-peace on the earth. The second seal is uh, in the sixth chapter verses three through four and is symbolized by a red horse, uh, a symbol of a period of warfare. The third seal symbolized by a black horse is covered in chapter six verses five and six and introduces a time of famine. The fourth seal is symbolized by a pale horse, literally an ashen colored horse and uh, is dealt with in verses seven through eight of the sixth chapter it symbolizes a period of death. The fifth seal, covered in verses 9 through 11 of of the sixth chapter, uh, speaks of a time of martyrdom of tribulational believers. The sixth seal, covered in chapters 12 and 13, uh, excuse me, verses 12 and 13, that's a typo, it should be chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, uh, speaks of natural and celestial catastrophes uh, that come upon the earth during that period of time. The seventh seal is not open until Revelation chapter 8 verse 1, but I included it here in this setting because it is part of that key and it reveals the seven trumpet judgments that are dealt with. There are actually three types of judgments that are given to us in symbolism in the book of Revelation. The seven seal scroll, the seven seal scroll judgments and then out of the seven seal scroll judgments we have the seven trumpet judgments and then in addition to that we have the seven vials or bowls of judgment that are poured out upon the earth and so the seven trumpet judgments are revealed when the seventh seal is broken on the seven sealed scroll so chapter Five, uh, or chapter 5 introduces this book, chapter 6 uh, gets us into uh, the first half of the tribulation as it continues to uh, detail events that are going to occur by the breaking of the seven seals uh, as John uh, reveals them for us. The first four of the seal judgments occur during the first three and a half years of the tribulation the tribulation is a seven year period of time the first half of which is identified as being tribulation but the last half of three and a half years is identified as the great tribulation and there uh, are some marked differences between the first half and the second half of the tribulational period and so the first four seal judgments occur in the first half of the tribulation the first four trumpet judgments also occur in the first half of the tribulation. All seven of the vile judgments uh, occur in the last half of the tribulation, and uh, part of those occur in the last couple of months of the tribulation, and we'll be examining those and looking at those and identifying them for you uh, at a later time. So beginning with chapter 6 and going through chapter 10, we have a presentation of the first half of of the Tribulation, or the first three and a half years of the Tribulational period. That's covered in chapter 6 through 10. And then, after 11, we go back to that same period of time uh, to look at some specifics, uh, especially the identification uh, of some of the chief uh, characters or participants uh, that are identified in the tribulational period some personalities and so when we we get to chapter 11 we go into a parenthesis where we go back to look at uh, a more detailed account of some of the aspects uh, of the first three and a half years. It's similar to the book of Genesis in which in the first chapter uh, we have the creative account given and then when we get to the second chapter there's a parenthesis that goes back and explains in greater detail what he did on the sixth day when he created man. And it's not to be, to be taken in chronological order, chapter 1 into chapter 2, but to see chapter 1 and then go back, taking what is in chapter 2 and seeing a larger explanation, a parenthetical passage uh, that deals with what happened on the sixth day of creation. And so, chapter 11 through 13 will be going back into the first three and a half years and looking at some specifics in that area. Then in chapter 14 through chapter 19 verse 11 we deal with the last half of the tribulation or that period which is called the Great Tribulation. So I'll call also uh, identified in Daniel's writings and uh, we'll be looking at his application of that a little later. Great Tribulation is the last half of the seven year period and it lasts three and a half years. The last three sealed judgments occur there during that time. The last three trumpet judgments and the seven vial judgments occur during that time. Now, during the first three and a half year period, evangelism is going to be by, uh, headed up by 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh no, that's not right. That's, that's not right. <laughs> That's what they think. It's going to be 144,000 Jewish converts. These are Jews who are saved almost immediately following the rapture. They recognize that what had been taught by the Christians must have certainly had some reality to it, for all of a sudden all the Christians are gone. And so there'll be 144,000 male Jews that are going to be saved. Actually, the scripture says they are male virgin Jews, men who have never known a woman. They will be saved and they will become the evangelist during the first three and a half years. It might be of some comfort to you to know that there is currently an organization dedicated to achieving that goal. It might be discomforting to you to find out they're not doing too well. Uh, The organization was started More than a century ago, when someone had discovered that there were to be 144,000 Jews, male Jews that were virgins, and 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, and so they set out putting together an organization of male Jews that would remain chaste and not become uh, not marry and remain virgins, that they might bring this about. Well, in 1981. It was the last time I read about the organization. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times about it in 1981. And at that time, they currently had four members uh, in the organization. And so if we wait for them to put it together, it'll never happen. Uh, But God is going to be able to put it together uh, in his own sequence. How do they propagate? They don't. (laughs) They just seek to try to win new converts from among the, the virgin males there's some difficulty in the uh, in the attempts of man to try to set the stage for the events of prophecy Uh, it's exciting when we watch God set the stage very frustrating when we try to get involved uh, in setting the props on the stage itself this time when I read that article in the LA Times in 81 uh, the organization was headquartered in the state of Washington and I've not heard anything about them since probably the four decided forget it went out and got married or whatever but uh, there are going to be somewhere 144,000 uh, virgin Jew males, 12,000 out of each of the tribes of Israel. In our study, or overview, I shouldn't say study because it was very quickly covered, but in our overview of dispensations, we said that God still owed Jews 107 years uh, in which they were to be his administrators. And that was based upon the prophecy given to Daniel that when Artaxerxes signed a decree for the Jews to go back out of the Babylonian, later the Medo-Persian captivity, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, that from the signing of the decree, there would be a period of 490 years that they would be, the Jews would be his administrators. And that period of 490 years was divided into three segments of time. 49 years of trouble, And it took them 49 years to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and secure it so that the trouble ended. And then there would be a period of, uh, including that 49 years, but up to 483rd year, at the 483rd year, the Messiah would be killed. And as archaeologists have contributed enormously to uh, documentation of Scripture, the document that Artaxerxes has uh, signed to allow uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and the others to go back and do the work. That document was signed on the 14th day of the month of Abib, and 483 years later, on the 14th day of the month of Abib, in 30 AD, Christ died on the cross. Not only to the year, but to the very day that the prophecy of Daniel had declared. At that point, uh, the the work of the Jews, the custodial responsibility of the Jews, uh, was cut off at the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, in which the the church began and became grafted in as the administrative uh, force to do the evangelization and administer God's estate. We, will, we have an assigned project to do and when our work is completed we will be taken up out of the earth and the last seven years that period of, of, of uh, tribulation the Jews will be the evangelists. And so the 144,000 in the first three and a half years are Jews. And they're identified as coming out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now when you read those, that list of 12 tribes you may notice that the tribe of Dan is missing. There are 12 tribes listed, but the tribe of Dan is not included in that list. The 12th one that comes in to replace the missing tribe of Dan is the divided tribe of Joseph, where his tribe was divided to to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The tribe of Dan historically has always been the tribe that led the Jews into idolatry and away from God. And so they are not identified. But the double portion of the tribe of Joseph is identified in that place. And so there will be 12,000 out of each of the tribes except for the tribe of Dan. And out of, out of Joseph's descendants, the two sons, then will be made up the, the balance uh, of the additional 12,000 so that you'll have 144,000. They will not be the only evangelist, but they will be the key evangelist. And they will do the evangelizing. There will be a tremendous number of both Jews and Gentiles that are saved during their period of evangelization for three and a half years. And when we get second three and a half year period of time, the tribulation is so... Severe at that point of time that God tells them to flee and he takes them into the mountains of Edom and Moab and hides them. And so there is the need for a different type of administrator or of evangelist. And there'll be two. Two special evangelists or witnesses that come on the scene at the three and a half year mark and do the evangelization for the last three and a half years. Many people identify them as Enoch and Elijah because Enoch was translated, did not experience physical death, but was translated into heaven. And Elijah did not see physical death, but was translated into heaven. And so uh, some scholars believe that it will be Enoch and Elijah that will come back because it's appointed that a man wants to die and neither of those died and so they'll come back and at the end of the three and a half year period when their work's done they will be killed. Now the whole world will try to kill them during the three and a half years but they won't be able to hurt them. But when their work is completed they will be killed. And so some try to uh, identify that as Enoch and Elijah. However I do not fall in that group in that Enoch was not a Jew. He ministered on the earth, lived on the earth long before uh, the Jewish age, long before God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees Uh, and uh, made of him a great nation. And so the stewardship responsibility is that of Jews, and the evangelists are Jews, and so Enoch cannot be part of that picture. Jesus made the statement in his earthly ministry to his disciples that some of those that were there would not see death until they saw the kingdom of God coming in. And a few days later, he had Peter, James, and John with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah appeared to him, and they were talking about the work of the kingdom and the kingdom age and things that were going to be done. And uh, as we look at the miracles that these two evangelists do, we see there are miracles that both en- both uh, Moses and Elijah uh, performed while they were on the earth. Moses uh, was a Jew, and Elijah was a Jew, and so. Uh, I will approach this from the viewpoint that it will be both both Moses and Elijah that will return. You may remember that though Moses died, God buried him so that no one could find his body and that there was a great dispute between uh, the devil and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. And Michael prevailed to keep the devil, keep keep Satan from getting the body of Moses. And so there must be some role that God has in view for that, and it certainly comes to reality when we look in the last three and a half years and see him come back in the evangelization as an evangelist during that period of time. Which, by the way, will be the first time that he actually gets into the land of promise. Remember, he got right up to order and God took him up and showed him the land but said you couldn't go in. So he finally will uh, get to go into the land uh, during the last three and a half years of the tribulational period. So the the tribulation divided into two periods of time. Book of Revelation then uh, looked at those two periods of time. Uh, the sixth through the tenth chapter, actually the sixth through the thirteenth chapter with the first three and a half years, and then the fourteenth through the nineteenth chapter, at least verse eleven of the nineteenth chapter with the last three and a half year period. Then in chapter nineteen beginning at verse eleven and going through verse twenty one we have presented the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I need to make a clarification by my reference to second coming. Now when I speak about his second coming, I mean when he actually comes to the earth, down to the earth. At the rapture of the church, he does not land on the earth. He comes in the air, and the church is called up to meet him in the air. And then they go back with him, and uh, the events of the judgment seat, the awards banquet in the sky, and our uh, being given our appointed uh, designated responsibilities in both the millennium and eternity will be uh, taken care of at the judgment seat of Christ uh, as the tribulation uh, is fulfilled here upon the earth. At the end of the tribulation period, we will come back with Christ and he will then land atop the Mount of Olives. When his feet Touch on top of the Mount of Olives, a great earthquake is going to occur. And the mountain is going to cleave into a canal is going to be opened from Azel on the Mediterranean up through the Mount of Olives and down to the Dead Sea. So that a river of water is going to flow both directions out of Jerusalem uh, into the Mediterranean, and into the Dead Sea area. And of course, uh, when Christ establishes his millennial kingdom, then the curse from the earth will be removed, and and the desert will truly blossom as a rose uh, as all of that occurs. Archaeologists uh, and geologists have, uh, to their amazement, discovered an earthquake fault in the Mount of Olives. I'm sure that the Apostle John knew about that, and he just put that in there, you see, when he wrote uh, all that. And, and Zachariah and those, they understood about that earthquake fault, so they said, well, there'll be an earthquake and it'll split in two. Well, God has already prepared the situation, for that earthquake fault runs from Azale on the Mediterranean up through the Mount of Olives and down to the Dead Sea. And so God, in his, in his foreknowledge, is prepared, already set the stage and developed the mechanism uh, for being able to accomplish uh, what he wants to accomplish. Of course, he didn't need the earthquake fault. He could, uh, he could create that instantaneously, but uh, it's my opinion that he has helped us to discover that it's there simply to add credibility uh, to uh, the documents that we find relative to that. So when he lands atop the Mount of Olives, that will be his second coming, when he actually stands upon the earth again. And that's covered beginning in chapter 19, verse 11 uh, through verse 21. In chapter 20, we have the binding of Satan. When Christ comes back to the earth to establish his millennial reign, he will bind Satan in the bottomless pit, and he will be bound there for a thousand years. All unbelievers will be removed from the earth at that point. All the demonic spirits will be removed from the earth at that point. The Antichrist, the false prophet, they will be thrown in the lake of fire at that point. uh, A thousand years before Satan is actually thrown in. But Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit, which is the lowest abyss, described as being in the heart of the earth, where there is darkness. And he will be held there for that thousand-year period as Christ reigns upon the earth. And so the 20th chapter, uh, beginning with uh, verse 1 and going through verse 6, uh, deals with the binding of Satan and the millennial reign of Christ. There's certainly a need to get into some of the Old Testament prophetic books to learn more about the, the millennial reign of Christ because in six verses we have all that the book of Revelation has to say about the binding of Satan and the millennial reign and the millennial reign is covered in one very brief verse. But we can harmonize that then with what we find in the Old Testament prophecies relative to the millennial reign of Christ. In chapter 20, verse 7 through verse 9, Satan is released from the bottomless pit and at the end of this thousand year reign of Christ and he makes a final attempt to overthrow God. Interesting that he goes up into Russia and gets a great host of people out of Russia and then from other nations that have individuals who have been born during the millennial reign. Remember I said that all unbelievers will be removed from the earth at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, so that that thousand years begins with only unbelievers on the earth. Adam's got a lot of bad-mouthing through the years about him really blowing it. And we are living the way we are living today because he blew it. If he had left things alone, we'd still be in the Eden state, but he blew it. Well, God's going to show that it won't, wasn't just one man that'll blow it, that perfect environment is not the solution to man's need, that there's a need for a changed nature, and so that perfect environment will exist. It'll be an identical estate upon the earth with Christ himself ruling upon the earth, and those uh, that are in their natural bodies will continue to propagate children, beginning with believers. Children will be born And out of those children will will come rebellion, unbelief, and many that will throw in their lot with Satan when he's released from the bottomless pit. Uh, Flip Wilson's Geraldine uh, says, The devil made me do it. He won't be able to say that during the millennial reign. The devil will be bound uh, in the bottomless pit. But it will be a final attempt by God to show that environment's not the, the solution to our problem, but a change in our nature. And so Satan will gather those unbelievers uh, at the end of that thousand years, will try to overthrow God. He will be defeated, thrown into the lake of fire. This heaven and this earth will melt with a fervent heat and pass away. A new heaven and a new earth will come into existence. The great white throne judgment will occur. Great white throne judgment, as we will study it, we will see that it is a judgment for unbelievers only. No believer goes to the great white throne judgment. Romans chapter 8 verse says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So we will not go before the great white throne judgment. The word condemnation actually means judgment. There will be no judgment of those that are believers. Now I mentioned earlier the, the judgment seat of Christ. The word for that uh, judgment seat is called bema and it refers to an evaluation and an awarding for works, not uh, dealing at all with condemnation or anything of that nature that will occur at the Great White Throne. All unbelievers from Adam's time until the end of the millennial reign will stand before the Great White Throne, and they will be judged according to their works. I don't know if you grew up with the movie screen Uh, philosophy at the great white throne that I grew up with but I found many people were exposed to that philosophy that every secret thought that every wrong thing that all of our dirty sins and laundry is going to be trotted out for us to see for everybody to see great white throne judgment I don't know how that philosophy got started it certainly doesn't have a biblical base because the terminology and we'll examine this uh, as we get there in the great white throne that the individuals that are there are going to be judged by their works, by their good works, by their production. But it will have to add up to perfection and it will not. And when it's evident that that individual's uh, life has not met the standard, Scripture says we've all sinned and come short of the good God. The word sin is an archery term for shooting an arrow at the bullseye and missing the mark the mark is absolute perfection we have all sinned, we've all missed the mark and come short of the glory of God where glory refers to his character remember we looked at that last time uh, and talked about the attributes of God's character the seven attributes of his character and so they will everyone who stands at the great white throne judgment will have fallen short and so the land's book of life will be open if their name is in the land's book of life all right but their names will not be there for where their name was, it has been blotted out. And so they will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And then, we go into chapters 21 and 22, which usher in eternity. And all that we have in the book of Revelation about eternity, is covered in chapters 21 and 22. So that's the breakdown of the, threat of the book itself. And we will use that as a, uh, a framework to work in and then we'll reach over into some of the Old Testament uh, prophecies and fill in the gaps uh, and give some other detail uh, as much as we can in the time frame uh, in which we're going to be working. Okay, any question about the, the general outline of it? While you're wired with the uh, tape. Would you go through the seven attributes, of okay, characteristics? Uh, we will be doing. I'll do. I'll be glad to do that tonight. We'll be we'll be looking at that uh, through the book of Genesis or uh, the book of Revelation because it also deals uh, with uh, John seeing a rainbow about the throne of God. And if you remember, I shared that the rainbow was given as a sign of God's promise. Uh, that he made to Noah and his descendants that he would never again destroy all flesh by flood and that the same colors uh, have literary symbolism of the seven attributes of God that the red stands for God's love that God is love that orange uh, stands for uh, as a symbol of God's uh, omnipresence His being in attendance all the time everywhere. That yellow stands for his omniscience, his all-knowing and full. It's the word omni uh, means all or complete or full, and so when we speak about omnipresent, we're speaking about his attendance all the time or fully. When we speak about his omniscience, uh, that's omniscience, and science means knowledge, and so all knowledge or full knowledge. So the red his love, the orange uh, his omnipresence, the yellow his omniscience. The green uh, speaks of God's eternalness, the fact that he is eternal, not having any beginning and not having any end. Uh, Blue speaks of the fact that God is righteous, absolute righteous. Uh, Righteous is, that word in the Greek language is daikonosune and it means that which conforms to the specifications of the plan. We fall short of meeting God's specifications of the plan. And God is absolute righteousness. He conforms exactly to the plan. Of course, he made up, he drew up the plan, but he has conformed to it exactly. And that uh, righteousness is comprised of perfect truth, of perfect justice, and of immutability or unchangeableness so that he is faithful. Then, where am I? Violet. Uh, what's the other one? Pardon? Indigo. Indigo, Indigo uh, stands for God's omnipotence, omnipotent, all-powerfulness. The fact that there is no power above His, and the powers that be uh, are allowed by Him. And then finally, the violet uh, or purple, which identifies the sovereignty of God those seven attributes. All other attributes that you might uh, think as a separate attribute will fit into one of those seven categories and be identified with them. And so, uh, his his absolute uh, character is presented to us in uh, the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking uh, at that as well, and in the Revelation account we'll see that, that the rainbow is said to be like an emerald because the the dominant feature of the rainbow was the eternalness because we're looking into an eternal state at that particular time. And we'll be sharing those those symbolisms uh, further with you a little later. All right, another question or comment. All right, open your Bible to the book of Revelation then. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. The word revelation literally means unveiling. Unveiling. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. I heard a minister speaking on the radio on Revelation the other day and and uh, the number of times that I've heard him I've been in pretty close harmony with his his theology but he made a statement about this this opening statement in Revelation that this was the unveiling of Jesus Christ and he said so what we need to see is that the book of Revelation is a book about Jesus Christ to unveil him, to help us see his character and his work and all that relates to that. Well, the the grammatical structure here identifies this as the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's genitive case, which is genitive of source. It's the revelation that comes from the source of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not so much attempting to reveal himself as he is to reveal the things that he has. Things that are being revealed are coming from the source of Jesus Christ. He's revealing things that are about the events that are to occur in the future. And there are three basics that are really important when we get involved in Bible interpretation. The first one is, what does the passage say? We need to know exactly what the passage says. And sometimes that means getting back into the original language. Sometimes that means investigating the grammatical structure. Now, if you do not believe, as I do, that the Bible was inspired grammatically, then you will come away with a completely different uh, approach and a a different uh, result from the study of the Word, and that's fine. Uh, You're entitled to that. Uh, I indicated to you the first night that I do believe in the divine inspirational uh, aspect of the grammar as well. And so uh, to understand, to know exactly what the passage says, there are times when we need get into the original language. An English word uh, does not convey the, the uh, thought that the, a Greek word, a corresponding Greek word might convey. There are different aspects that are brought out. If any of you have studied Spanish, uh, you perhaps might identify a little more with what the Greek language is like. The Spanish language is derived totally from the Greek language. And uh, its style uh, and basics are much like the Greek language where the English language is derived uh, from Greek and Latin. Uh, I've got an English professor here so I'll not enlarge too much on that. But uh, the, the Greek and the Latin, some of our words have a Greek origin and some of them have a Latin. Origin and I'm sure some of our colloquialisms have an American origin uh, as well. But language is constantly undergoing change. Wow. I have in my uh, file a uh, passage that was added to the uh, what do I want to call it, record. You know, our representatives can put just about anything in the sun in the congressional record, especially when they get into a time in which they might want to do a little filibustering. And this uh, particular document that I have that was placed in the Congres- congressional record talks about the English language. And it was uh, written during the 60s and the, hi- the hippie uh, epidemic. And so it makes some comparisons between what words used to mean and what they meant in the 60s. Talks about the difference what grass used to be a lawn covering normally green or ground cover normally green, but in the 60s and the 70s, it meant something you smoked. And a whole lot of other terminology that that we have experienced in our time on the earth of seeing tremendous change in the use of words. Uh, so I, I used to be real comfortable and said, "Oh, I'll take a Coke." But now I won't. I, I said, "No, I'll have a Coca-Cola or a soft drink," uh, lest that word Coke uh, be misconstrued in the interpretation. So when we look at what a passage says, it is necessary many times not only to see what it said in the original language. But also to understand how it was used at the time in which that word was written, and that's what we call the etymology—the use of the word at the time in which it was it was used or, or written—that we might be able to identify uh, with exactly uh, what's been uh, what's being said in the Scripture. There are a number of, of references that I could cite. Uh, that that would help us to identify with that, but within our own framework, we recognize the need for uh, updating uh, our language from time to time. I heard uh, a minister a few weeks ago who uh, was teaching from a particular passage, and he said, "I got Webster down to see what this word means, and this is what Webster has to say about it." Well, that was fine, and that's what our English word does mean, but that's not what the Greek word meant that it was translated from. And so many times, it requires getting back into. Uh, the original language. And there's a lot of tools that are out for that, uh, that, that resources that are available to us. There's uh, work that one who is unfamiliar with Greek uh, can utilize uh, to help in that area. The second rule in, rela- in relation to biblical interpretation is what is the context in which that statement's made. You can quote Scripture and say we are to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And if you read that in Hebrew, it means party it up. Live it up because tomorrow we die. But that is not what God intended. That's what someone penned from a human viewpoint position and one that if taken out of context could certainly be distorted. But within context, if you if you within the context of which that is said, uh, read that context, you'll recognize that that's not the right way to do it and that's not beneficial to us. And so what does the passage around that verse say? What's the context in which the statement's made? The third guideline that is important in biblical interpretation is how does that passage, that statement, harmonize with every other passage in the Bible that deals with that issue? now the first two are pretty simple we could do that you know it's it's pretty simple for us to look at the context and see what's being said to check out the the passage and see what it really says but there's a lot of work involved in harmonizing all the scriptures that relate to that and so most of us will just take someone else's word for it uh, it's much easier just to just to uh, listen to some commentator or read some commentary by someone that we have respect for rather than doing that work ourselves. There are some other tools that are helpful. Strong's Concordance or Young's uh, Concordance are helpful in that area of being able to look up every time that particular uh, word is used in Scripture and working it through, but that takes a lot of work. Those are three essentials in biblical interpretation, and we need to adhere to them as we move our study uh, and especially when we move in areas of interpretation. So if you interpret that this is the revelation of Christ, he is revealing himself, rather than a revelation that comes from the source of Christ, if you read in the context, you'll see that he writes down a little further uh, and, and discloses what this is all about. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So the purpose of the letter is to show to the servants things that are shortly to come to pass. Shortly at the time in which John received this revelation in the year 96 A.D. The the word shortly might be a little misleading uh, in that the Greek says that these events are to come on with speed, not meaning that in a time of reference uh, it's a short period of time because this was given in 96 A.D. and we're in uh, 1991 uh, A.D. and so... let me take the last part of verse 1. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. This is John the Apostle. Uh, John who was on the Isle of Patmos at this particular time. He was, had been exiled there because of his preaching and uh, placed in this island exile. And it's while he was there that he received this message, revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then speaking of himself in verse 2, it says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Interesting that this book has a special blessing attached to just reading it to hearing it and to applying the things that are found in it, a special blessing is promised. You don't find that in any other book of the Bible identified specifically uh, in that context. But a special blessing. Blessed is he, and the word blessed is the Greek word makarios. It's a plural word, and it means uh, a plurality of inner happiness. So inner happinesses are the possession of the one that reads... And they that hear the words of the, this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And the the process of these events had already been set in motion. Because when we deal chapters two and three, we're going to deal with the the that aspect of the uh, uh, church in its panoramic prophetic history. And uh, the church at Ephesus represented the church of the first century. and So they were already into that. That church began, uh, the church of the first century began on, in 30 AD. And this is written in 96. So we're 66 years already into the church age when John is writing these. And he indicates that these things are already began uh, beginning and have been put into progress. Verse 4, he then says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace, grace be unto you, and peace from him, which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits, which are before his throne. All right. Seven churches that are in Asia. There were more than seven churches in Asia at the time that John wrote this. But seven specific are being picked out. And this letter is being sent to these seven specific churches, though other churches are admonished to heed what is being said here. And as we look at the seven churches, we'll see that panoramic view of prophecy uh, as it moves across the centuries of the church age. But he identifies that this is to the seven churches, uh, and literally to seven churches which are in Asia, not to the only churches. The only seven churches, but to seven of the churches that are in Asia. Then John says, Grace be unto you and peace from him. Grace always precedes peace. In all of history, God has always provided a time of grace, a period of grace. And if we will, that grace has always preceded judgment. And if we will embrace that grace, we can experience peace. But you have to have grace before you can have peace. I was pastoring in Huntington Beach. A lady called me on the phone one day and she said, Pastor, I would like for you to tell me and help me in counseling to understand how I can have peace. She said, I am in torment. I am frustrated. I I feel with anxiety and with worry. I have no peace at all. And she said, a lady who lives down my street, just a couple of doors down from me, goes to your church. And that lady has peace. And I want the peace that she has. I want peace like that. And I said, well, you can certainly have it. For God has made it available to all of us. She says, well now before you get started I want to tell you, I don't want to become a Christian. Now I may do that one of these days but I'm not ready to do that now. And and so don't start preaching to me. Just tell me how I can have peace. And I said, lady, I'm sorry. Because the only way you can get this peace is by taking the grace that God's offering you that grace has to be accepted you have to receive what he's provided to experience his peace you can't get peace on the layaway program of saying give it to me now and I'll get around to paying for it later I'll get around to being saved later I want the peace now it just won't work I tried to reason with her I tried to get an appointment with her but that was the end of it and uh, I never heard from her again I did talk with the lady that lived on her street and uh, shared with her about her neighbor, and she uh, visited the lady a number of times, and and tried to witness to her. But she wanted the result of salvation without having the commitment of salvation. And uh, I trust that she finally got around to putting it in proper perspective. You cannot have peace without having grace. But another thing needs to be added to that. Your peace is in direct proportion to your understanding of what you have in grace. If you've been saved by God's grace, then you have peace available to you, but it may not be being realized in your life. There are certain times in my life when I don't utilize it because I want to look at them from a human viewpoint, or I want a little uh, vengeance, or I want my way about a circumstance. I don't like the way God's doing it. I know He's going to do it In such a way it's going to be a blessing to me, but I'd rather be blessed in another way. And so I disassociate myself from understanding his grace. And my peace is gone. And so we've got to understand the doctrine of grace and utilize it to be able to have that peace that passes all human. And in grace, God has given us grace for salvation in that we have God's righteousness at Christ's expense, using the letters G-R-A-C-E, to form an acrostic. Uh, We have God's righteousness at Christ's expense for salvation. Didn't cost us anything. God picked up the tab. He lived the life, made the sacrifice, experienced the death, and provides life to whosoever will. In living the Christian way of life, we have His grace. He doesn't expect us to use our own resources, but he provides his resources and his assets so that we have god's resources or god's riches at christ's expense to live the christian life and in eternity again it's grace we have god's realm at christ's expense the very kingdom of god is given to us at the expense of jesus christ and so grace comes before peace do you have a question about by grace like joy to have seen that a lot of times that people, people accept the Lord, but they don't really really see the joy. You don't see the joy in their life. Aren't you? Right. It's not that you don't see the joy, but they don't they don't feel the joy. Joy is a result of peace. Okay. And if they don't have the peace, then they are not going to have the joy. The joy is not going to be produced in their life. And most of the time, uh, it's because they either don't understand. What they have, and how God's grace is working in their life, or they don't like the way God's doing it. It's one or the other uh, in our own lives and in the lives of others. And there's so many Christians that are just miserable. You know, just we can just tough it through. We talk about hanging on. I used to say, "Well, hang in there," but that's really incorrect doctrine. You are not going to have peace until you quit hanging in there and give up and let God take care of it. Then peace is there, and then joy then overflows from that. Sure. You said it would be the acronym of grace. What's the A and the C? A uh, G stands for God's Possessed. Uh, R for righteousness. A for act. C for Christ, and E for expense. And then the only one you change is the R from from righteousness to resources to realm. Okay? So, we'll never get through Revelation if I do this, but, but I, I have a tendency to do this. Uh, there was a need for us to relate right at the beginning that God has provided His grace, and He wants us to understand what we have so that we can have the peace, and grace always comes before peace. Grace unto you and peace from Him. And Then He has described, uh, the, and this is a description of Jesus, which is which was, and which is to come. He is, he was, and he is to come, John said in 96 A.D. So, he existed in eternity past, (coughs) he existed at the time in which John was writing, and he is to come in the events of prophecy as John was going to reveal it for us. And then he says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. The seven spirits represent the seven attributes that we just talked about. Those seven attributes are defined as spirits that are before the throne of God. And from Jesus, literally from even from Jesus, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There's about a year and a half of theology in each one of those statements. We won't spend that much time. But from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He is, this is not a revelation of Saint John the Divine, as it says in the English heading of so many of our Bibles. This is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one doing the unveiling. Jesus Christ is the witness that is testifying to these things that are going to occur. He is the faithful witness. The first begotten of the dead He is the first one who has come forth from the dead. Well, you say, what about Lazarus? What about the older references that we have of those in the Bible who were raised from the dead? There's a distinction between the way they were raised and the way Jesus was raised. Theirs was, in all reality, a resuscitation, meaning they came back in their own bodies, in their natural bodies. Jesus came back in a glorified body. Lazarus eventually died at some other point. He was resuscitated and came back to life in in his natural body. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was able to appear and to disappear at will. Uh, he he was able to appear in a room that the doors and the windows were were locked, barred. Uh, he was able to come and go in a different frame reference than we are. And uh, so his was he is the first begotten of the dead in a resurrection body. Uh, there are some who suggest that we will have. Uh, the same kind of body that Jesus had when He came from the grave. Uh, I used to be among those that suggested that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a friend who uh, who goes so far as to say that every one of us will be thirty three and a half years old because Jesus was thirty three and a half years old when He was crucified and rose from the dead, and so we'll have bodies that are thirty three and a half years old. However, John writing in the Book of Revelation. And in his uh, epistles, it uh, says, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when we shall see him, we shall be as he is. Well, John saw the resurrected Christ. And yet he said, it does not yet appear what we shall be. Yet when we shall see him, we shall be as he is. So it indicates to me that John is, is giving at least some room for thought that there may have been a transition in the body of Jesus from the time he saw it until the time that he shall come in glory. Now, I I didn't say that dogmatically. You notice I said it gives some room uh, for us to look at it from that position. However he appears, we shall be like him in a glorified body. He is the first begotten among the dead. And he is the prince of the kings of the earth. Uh, We... We don't have time to deal with all this, but the word prince here means ruler. The word prince is pretty weak in English. He is the ruler. He is in the one that is in authority of all the kings of the earth. Saddam would be a little discomforted to find that out, wouldn't he? That the Lord Jesus Christ is in authority over him. Uh, but he is, and Saddam has what he has only because the Lord Jesus Christ is allowed it at this particular uh, time. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. A further description of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6 he says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hath made us kings and priests. We are kings. We are going to jointly rule with Christ in eternity. That's why we have God's realm at Christ's expense. We're going to rule and reign with Him. We are priests. This is addressed by believers in the church, so relates to us as well by principle. We are all priests. And uh, we are a kingdom, a royal priesthood, both kings and priests. Well, I was ordained to the ministry. I was working at a at a laundry in Salinas, California uh, for a Catholic couple. And I had been pastoring church for a year and a half uh, down at King City, California and was working in the laundry in Salinas. The, uh, when my bosses found out that I was going to be ordained, uh, the owner's wife said to uh, my boss, will we have to call him father? After he's ordained, and uh, I said, Yeah, that, that'd be good. Just call me Father. Then I pointed out to him that the scripture says we're not to call any man on earth our Father, and uh, created a whole muddy road for him to try to straighten out. And the last time I talked to him, he still hadn't straightened it out. But uh, we are priests, uh, not because I'm ordained, am I a priest? I'm a priest because I was saved by the grace of God, and as a priest, we have priesthood rights so that we can go to God directly uh, through our high priest the Lord Jesus Christ and then to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen the word glory is from the Greek word doxa and it refers it means honor or esteem that is bestowed on an individual as a result of a good opinion that the bestower has for that individual based upon that person's character. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So just think of character. That's the key thing. When you see the word glory, its emphasis is upon character and uh, addresses the perfect character of God. To Him, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says, uh, glory and the might into the ages of the ages into the ages of the ages and then amen the little English word amen is a transliteration of the Greek word amen which I call the Christian's credit card because the word amen means let it be so and let the saying of that be charged to my account willing to assume the responsibility for that statement. So we better be careful what we amen sometimes. But certainly there's a need for us to recognize uh, truth and be able to, to identify with that and put that on our card, our credit card as well. Then John, beginning at verse 7, says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall because of him even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega. First letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. The last letter of the Greek al- alphabet is Omega. Uh, idiom for referring to first and the last or beginning and ending. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending saith the Lord which is, which was, and which is to come the Almighty. Beginning at verse 9, then John, having told us about that encounter with the Lord, sets the stage for us and how he became involved in this. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was there because I due to my standing up for the word of God and, and declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ. I have been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And then verse 10 he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Greek text says, I became in the spirit on the Lord's day. Not I was in the spirit, but I became in the spirit. The word that is used uh, in the Greek text is to become something he wasn't, already and so uh, he became in the spirit. There are two ways in which this might be interpreted. it was out of fellowship and he got back in fellowship because the Bible talks about being in the spirit of being in fellowship and, and out of the spirit of being out of fellowship. Or he was talking about a transition from the flesh from the physical to the spirit in this particular text the definite article, the word the is not in the text I was in the spirit It's missing from the text and the Greeks didn't have the word a you couldn't say this is uh, a book it's either the book or it's book (laughs) in the Greek and that doesn't make a lot of sense in the English and so we have to add the the indefinite article the word a uh, to give it meaning. if the Greeks left it out left out the definite article they were they were emphasizing the quality rather than the specific and so there are many of us who believe he was saying that uh, there had been a break in fellowship and I got that restored I became in the spirit the quality of the spirit was changed at that point first John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and when there is unconfessed sin in our life we are identified as being carnal when we identify that sin to God when we acknowledge it to him then we are identified as being spiritual whether he moved simply from a fleshly trans spirit or whether he was out of fellowship and got in fellowship uh, is not identified without other uh, areas of harmonization and so we'll just leave that hanging tonight for your own interpretation. He said, I became in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voices of trumpets saying, I am off and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And I like the way my text reads, and sent it unto the seven churches. I don't know if that's a typo. Anybody else got a King James translation? Oh, pardon? Send. I've never noticed that until today. I was reading. It says sent it unto the seven churches. So it must be a typographical error uh, here. I don't know that Old English that that would have been permissible. But send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists the seven churches he wants it to go to: unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the patch with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet were uh, like unto fine brass, as if they had burned in a furnace." and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and have the keys of hell and of death write which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter so he breaks down the the revelation into three areas write the things that thou hast seen and the things that are and the things that shall be Hereafter, and we'll be looking at that a little more. The mystery of the cestars. When you see the word mystery in your Bible, it's translated from the Greek word mysterion, and it was a Greek word that referred to secrets that were known only to those in the organization. It was developed in the Greek fraternities. The reason so many of our fraternities on the uh, school campuses have Greek designations in the, the fraternity pro, uh, process and organizational structure started among the Greeks. The first Greek fraternity was the fraternity of Bacchus, where Bacchus is wine. And it was the fraternity to wine. It was an excuse for the guys to get out for an evening and go tie one on. And so they joined, started an organization called it a fraternity, told the wife take care of the kids I've got to go to fraternity tonight and went down and tied one on. Uh, they developed some secrets to their organization and so that word this refers to the secrets that were known only to those that were in that fraternity. That word is used in the New Testament to refer to the doctrine that is known only during the church age. It was not known in the Old Testament. These things were not revealed uh, to the Old Testament believers. But are revealed in the church age. And Paul identifies them as, as mysteries from the Stereon and, and uh, Jesus Christ refers to them here. The doctrine of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So seven churches represented by seven candlesticks, the Lord walking among them, and in his right right hand seven stars he says the stars are the angels of the church the word angel is brought over into the english language by transliteration if we translate from the greek to the hebrew or from the greek to the english we would take a corresponding english word that meant the same thing that greek word meant and use it, that would be translation. Transliteration is when we take the word out of the Greek language, bring it into the English language, and give it English pronunciation and spelling. The word angel was done that way. It's from the Greek word angelos. If we were to, if they translated it, they would have said messenger. If they transliterate it, they say angel. And so there are passages in our Bible Where it refers to the messenger and is translated from angel. The other passages where it transliterates it and just simply brings it over uh, into the English language by the word angel. He says to the messenger, messengers, plural, of the seven churches. Now, I interpret that to be the pastors of the seven churches. There are others who think that these are angelic beings that are in contact with the seven churches, but if we translate it, uh, the context would seem to indicate uh, more of a reference to the seven pastors. So uh, for sake of, of being able to be dogmatic, we'll say the seven messengers, to, the, to they are the messengers to the seven churches. So he identifies then part of the symbolism that we've already run across. He identifies the seven candlesticks as representing the seven churches to whom letters are addressed and the seven angels as being the messengers to the seven churches. Now there was a lot of other symbolism used when John saw the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and he refers uh, in uh, descriptive language to what he saw. beginning in verse 14, His head and His hairs uh, were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like in a fine brass or literally broad as if they had burned in a furnace. And His voice is the sound of many waters. Uh, We will be looking at some of these symbolisms as we get into the seven churches, the seven letters. Because at the beginning of each letter, He uses part of uh, this list of of symbolisms in each letter uh, because they represent specific things that tied into that particular church as well as that particular period of church history. So beginning then with chapter 2 and going through chapter 3 we're going to look at the, the letters to the seven churches. He has told him to write these letters and he begins the dictation of these letters in chapter 2 verse 1. He will write a letter to the church at Ephesus, another to the church at Smyrna, one to the church at Pergamus, one to Thyatira, one to Sardis, one to Philadelphia, and one to Laodicea. And as we look at them, we'll be examining churches that literally existed at that time, they were real churches, and the problems that are being dealt with were problems that were literal in the church at that time, in in that particular congregation. But it goes far beyond that. As it becomes descriptive, he chose those seven churches to form a geographical circle. If you were to start at Ephesus and move through these seven churches, you would form a circle in that area of Asia Minor. And uh, in that circle he's going to show us, beginning uh, with the first century church a prophetic declaration of the, the work of the church and the uh, character of the church through its ministry upon the earth. When we get to the end of the third chapter, if we start the fourth chapter, the church will leave the earth and go up into heaven. And it's for that reason he said, I want you to write the things that thou has seen, the things which are right now and seven churches, that was right now, and the things that shall be hereafter. And when he calls him up in chapter 4, he'll say, now I want to show you the things that are going to be hereafter. And we move then from the end of the church age uh, into the tribulational period in millennium and eternity. So uh, what we will see in the second and third chapters by direct application are pertinent to us today. What we see beginning uh, in the fourth chapter and living on through will be prophetic of those things that are going to come to pass. Now in the outline that I gave you tonight uh, on the first page uh, under chapters 2 and 3 of prophet- a prophetic panorama of church history I gave you a a breakdown uh, I think I this probably was also in the paper that I gave you on dispensations if I remember right uh, in which we see this panorama of uh, prophecy concerning the age of the church. Beginning in Pentecost in 30 A.D., uh, represented by the church at Ephesus, that period of time went from 30 A.D. to about 160 A.D. And then from 160 to 312, represented by the church at Smyrna. From 312 to 600, represented by the church at Pergamos. From uh, 600 to 1516, by the church at Thyatira from 1750, uh, or from 1560 to 70, the church at Sardis, from 1750 to, about, to roughly around 1950, the church at Philadelphia, from 1950 to the time that the church disappears from the earth, the lay of the sea and age. Uh, we next week, we'll look at these two chapters in detail, and then hopefully get into the fourth chapter so that we can tie all that together and then we'll move into the prophetic events. We'll look at some of the things that are, that, that are going to be set on the stage, that the stage has to have before the church is gone. And then when we begin at the fifth chapter, we actually move after the church is, is gone from the earth. In conclusion this evening, let me, let me say there are a number of different views among theologians. When I use the word theologian, the word theos means God and ology means study. So, hopefully, you're a theologian too. You're one who studies God, studies the things about God, the things of God. Theologians differ in interpretation, as we talked a little bit last time. And so, I, I remind you that I will be approaching this from the theological position that is called pre millennial, meaning that Christ will come uh, and establish the kingdom before the thousand years of of peace. I'm also pre-tribulationist, in which I believe that the church will be taken up out of the earth before the tribulation begins. we have already seen that I believe that, and the reason I believe that is because of the dispensationalist approach that I take that I presented to you last time. If you did not get one, is there anybody here that did not get one of those studies on dispensationalism? Anybody who's not here that didn't get one? I guess everybody's got one. Uh, <coughs> review that, if you will, between now, if you have time, between now and next week uh, and through those seven churches then. Then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of what Revelation has to say. Question? Observation? Contradiction? Argumentation? Anything like you'd like to say? No questions either? Huh? I've either made it so clear that you got it all down or bet it so bad you don't even know how to ask a question now about it. All right. Thank you. you. Turn it back over. You You want to take charge, huh? of reference, so that we are able then to immediately recognize that we have a foundation from which we are able to build uh, the framework of a relaxed mental attitude. As we understand grace, we then set a, a foundation again, a flooring upon which we are able then to further develop this structure of a relaxed mental attitude. If you would remember that you are an ambassador for Christ and that Christ has given you both the ability and the desire provided in grace all the operating assets that are necessary has not helped you responsible for results but rather has helped you responsible only to faithfully Use that which he gives to you, then you up a frame of a relaxed mental attitude. Or oh, you may not be relaxed all the time, but you will have a frame of reference from which you can begin to relax in your mental attitude about your spiritual performance and your Christian service. And so we need to Acquaint ourselves again with what we understand about God's provision and God's requirement and our role in responsibility and service that we might have around us a vision of the framework of a relaxed mental attitude. Therefore, If we go back down to the foundation and we understand God's righteousness at Christ's expense, God's riches at Christ's expense, and God's realm at Christ's expense, we not only have enough understanding of grace that we can begin to operate in that framework, but we also are able to relax them by knowing that we're not responsible for result, we're responsible for ministry, and the walls begin to take shape in which we are able to relax in our mental attitude of service to God. And then, we need to look at the third floor and develop a framework there as it relates to mastering the details of life. And if you would remember this one thing, it would help you, and you would already have some framework sticking up around this floor of mastering the details of life the thing that you need to remember and keep ever in your mind is that our contentment or our happiness is not to depend upon circumstances about what we have what we are doing where we are who we're with but rather our happiness and contentment is to depend upon the person and the work of this Christ that He alone is worthy of our praise and that we have been provided all that we need by His life and death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit and so we can have a sense of joy and have a sense of happiness that is not dependent upon our circumstances. Evaluate that floor for just a moment. Look at the framework that you have developed. How many days in your life is there happiness or joy that is not dependent upon the circumstances of that day? You'll find yourself dealing uh, uh, with that question that people raise, uh, how's your day? You'll find that you have to take a little more thought into answering that question. And uh, that... If it hasn't been what you would like for it to have been, the almost reflexive attitude was, I haven't had a good day. And uh, that means that your happiness has been dependent upon the circumstances of that day. And the circumstances haven't been to your liking, and so your happiness hasn't been what it could have been had you divorced yourself from the circumstances being the basis for your happiness and had joy and peace in the person and work of Jesus Christ look at the framework that you've erected to this point uh, on in that area of mastering the details of life and you'll see areas that need work and progress that you have already made that you can rejoice in and take comfort in your capacity to love the framework for that is the understanding of love. That it is agape, it is a self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and keeps on loving regardless of the response. How much of your love for others, for God, for your mate, and for others, is dependent upon response? That would be a quick key to inventorying the framework that we have developed and the structure that is being erected in that area of a capacity to love. And again, we must emphasize that it is in proportion to the other supporting floors beneath it. But the framework that you need to have is an understanding that we are to manifest self- Sacrificial love. And uh, the degree that we are able to understand that is the degree of the framework that we have developed. And then the fifth floor, inner happiness. That contentment that is based upon your understanding of grace, upon your Relaxing and allowing the Spirit of God to work in you and through you, of being content regardless of the circumstances or situation, of having that ability or capacity to love self-sacrificially and manifest that in giving to others uh, is going to help you in developing this framework of inner happiness. If we know that our happiness ought not to be dependent upon response, then we've raised a few upright studs in that structure. If we know and understand that, that our mastering the details of life means that our circumstance or our situation, who we're with, what we are doing, what we have is not the basis for happiness, then we are erecting other walls uh, in that frame of reference relative to inner happiness. I challenge you that as you go through this week, that you would inventory, uh, it would be to your advantage if you would take time and sit down with a piece of paper and and a writing instrument and uh, look at the teachings of Christ. And not to concentrate there first, how much do you know that Christ is taught, you'll get bogged down there. But rather, that you would list, write down the word grace, and that you would list what grace means to you. What God has done for you in grace, and what you are to be doing and are doing to others in grace. And then that you would look at, The relaxed mental attitude. And how relaxed are you? How operative do you allow the Holy Spirit to be in your life? Are you uptight about your spiritual performance? Are you cranking these things out? Are you performing this service? Or are you able to relax? To write down the areas in which you are able to relax in your spiritual performance. And areas where you have difficulty in relaxing in that spiritual performance. And then, that you would look at the other details of life. That you would list those details of life that you are dependent upon for happiness. Be honest with yourself. Those things that are a hindrance to your happiness and those things that contribute to your happiness and they might see where you really are in this area of mastering the details of life. And then... Your ability to love God.